0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got two guests here today for Spirit in Action, and actually we'll have more guests on the same topic next week. That topic is war tax resistance, sometimes called war tax redirection, and it's a concern and practice that has been near and dear to my own heart since I became a war tax resistor back in 1982. At the heart of the matter is the fact that some 50% of every income tax dollar each of us pays goes to the military, something that is a deep violation of religious, moral, and ethical principles for many of us. Fortunately, there are groups like the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, NWTRCC, often pronounced NUTRIC, who provide education and support for those of us who choose this form of witness and action. And they have a periodic newsletter and email list of the kinds of actions that related groups do all across the USA, especially around April 15th, Tax Day. This year, 2019, their coordinator, Lincoln Rice, sent out a note about the inspirational and engaged actions of war tax resistors around Tax Day. So I've got Lincoln Rice on the phone now from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to share some of that news and to point us in the direction of some of those activists. Lincoln, it's good to have you here today for Spirit in Action.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You became the coordinator for Nutric not too long ago this past year, I think. When did you actually start? I started the
1: first weekend in May of 2018.
0: Okay, so almost exactly a year you've been doing this. Have you been in Milwaukee long term?
1: I've been in Milwaukee the last 20 years or so. I'm originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and came down to Milwaukee to go to college. During my senior year of college... I moved into the local Catholic worker community, which works on a variety of social justice issues, but also takes in about seven or eight homeless families at a time in the Milwaukee area, and it was there that I met other folks who practiced war tax resistance, and it was the following year in 1999 that Nutrick had one of their conferences here in Milwaukee, and That was when I took my first step towards becoming a war tax resistor and becoming more involved with NUTRIC as a volunteer up until I took over as the coordinator uh, last
0: year. And again, when we say NUTRIC, we're using the acronym NWTRCC, the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. So, those people that were involved with war tax resistance when you moved there, because my first experience with war tax resistance was also in Milwaukee. Someone in the Quaker meeting had made announcements about war tax resistance. I'd been in the Peace Corps, hadn't thought about it a lot myself. But now that I was back in regular American society, it felt like I should be doing something. I got connected with the war tax resistance group in Milwaukee, including Don Timmerman, who was part of Casa Maria. Was he part of the group that introduced you to war tax resistance?
1: Yes. So it's a small world. He's still here, still a war tax resistor, and he was the one who first introduced me to it, though there are others here that also practiced it at the time, but He was also the one who was instrumental in hosting the NUTRIC meeting that happened here in November of 99, which brought me in direct contact with other folks involved with war tax resistance from all over the country.
0: That's wonderful that his work and passion for that has continued, and his passion for Casa Maria as well. Tell me why Casa Maria particularly appealed for you. There's two things I'm thinking of here, Casa Maria and your war tax resistance, and I think there's a linkage between the two.
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely a strong pacifist stance that's part of the Catholic worker movement. And it was one of the things that attracted me to the Catholic worker movement, this notion of living more simply, sharing with others, and taking that to the extreme of trying to never do harm to another person. So that's probably one of the reasons that there's always been a very strong connection between war tax resistance and Catholic workers during the history of the Catholic worker movement, even though war tax resistance itself is much older than the Catholic worker movement, which only started in the 1930s.
0: Could you say a little bit more about what you do as Part of casa maria again because i lived in milwaukee for eight years i experienced casa maria the quaker meeting we used to bring over meals sometimes and there are all kinds of wonderful people activists within the casa maria community who i considered like brothers and sisters so could you say a little bit more about what you do and what is casa maria in milwaukee
1: Yes. Oddly enough, the Quaker group that you mentioned that brings meals still brings meals. For the 21 years I've been involved with Casa Maria, they've come once a month bringing homemade macaroni and cheese and homemade chili, and I've never gotten sick of it. It's always <laughs> it's, a, it's a great recipe. Mac
0: and cheese? How could you get sick of that? Come on. <laughs>
1: but at Casa Maria, we have three houses. The main one goes back to nineteen. 19- 66, so Casa Maria has been around for almost 53 years now, and its main work has always been taking in families that need a place to stay. We're now on Milwaukee's north side. Actually, its first year it was on Milwaukee's south side, which now is actually a largely Hispanic community. But when it opened on the south side in the 60s, it was still very much a Polish community and a very white community. It was before the desegregation happened on the south side. But at that point, Casa Maria was a space for migrant workers, mainly of Mexican descent, who were passing through. And so that's where our name comes from. Even though now we might take in a family that's of Hispanic descent from time to time, but it's Not as common. Most of the makeup of the family staying with us are African-American or white. But at any given time, like I said, we'll have seven to eight families staying with us and just provide food and housing. And all the community members like myself who are part of the group are volunteers. Most of us live within the houses themselves. It does create a different atmosphere because we do split up who takes turns, you know, answering the phone and the door and making meals, who's, you know, in charge for a certain period of time to make the decisions. And it does create a different atmosphere when you're having to make decisions that might impact the family staying there. And you realize that at the end of the day, you're still going to be in the same house with this family. So, you know, even when I'm not at my best self, I might rethink how I'm going to talk to someone who's in a vulnerable situation because I know I'll probably be eating breakfast with them the next morning. So
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it does, you know, I definitely learned the 21 years I've been there, is it itself has been an experiment in nonviolence. It's definitely helped me to examine more closely what nonviolence means on an interpersonal level and just how to live a more nonviolent life in my daily interactions, and how to be honest with people. Uh, Not that I would view myself as a dishonest person beforehand, but I think when you're living in such close quarters with people, it requires maybe having to address issues before they become larger conflicts.
0: By the way, you said you moved down there for college. And there are a couple colleges you could choose from. I actually have a bachelor's degree from UW-Milwaukee, but I assume yours was maybe with Marquette?
1: I've collected a couple degrees since I've been down here. When I first came down here, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I graduated there with my B.A. in accounting in in
0: 1999. (laughs) That's why you're the national coordinator.
1: (laughs) I do take care of the books, too, so it comes in handy from time to time. And then a few years later went back to school at St. Francis Seminary on the south side of Milwaukee and got my master's in theology and in 2013 graduated from Marquette with my Ph.D. in
0: Christian ethics. Okay. And you said Christian ethics. I had read that your PhD was in moral theology and Christian ethics. Are they the same thing? Essentially. Sometimes I'll say
1: Christian ethics if it's a group that's not Catholic, or, you know, if it's a Catholic, moral theology is more of a Catholic term, and so outside of the Catholic realm, sometimes it's It doesn't click with people immediately what that means, but essentially they're the same thing. If you were a Protestant going there and getting your Ph.D., you'd probably say Christian Ethics.
0: I understand also that, Lincoln, you're a lay minister at a local Catholic church. What is a lay minister as opposed to a priest or a sister? I mean, there's Franciscan lay orders as well. I mean, there's a number of possibilities. So what does it mean to be a lay minister?
1: As a lay minister, from a Catholic perspective, you'd be someone who is involved in the ministries of the church. Uh, You might be doing preparation for baptism, preparation for other sacraments like First Communion, leading Bible studies, but essentially the thing that would separate you from the ordained minister, the priest, would be that you wouldn't actually perform the sacraments of marriage or baptism or the Eucharist
0: or extreme unction or whatever they call that
1: Correct, correct. But it would often include, you still, because, especially in the Catholic Church with the priest shortage, it would include doing some pastoral care when people are in times of crisis, a spiritual crisis, or suffering from loss of a loved one, job troubles, etc., trying to put that in the larger context of
0: faith. Well, I have tremendous respect for the Catholic Workers' Movement and the people at Casa Maria, but the reason I have you here today, and folks, we're speaking with Lincoln Rice, who is the National Coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, pronounced NUTRIC, that's why I have you here, and because I saw your announcement of tax day activities, both before and then afterwards. Tax Day 2019. And I wanted to get from you some links to people who were part of these actions, supporting, advocating, lifting up the witness of war tax resistance nationwide. So let's start with right there in Milwaukee. Were there specific activities going on on Tax Day 2019 in Milwaukee?
1: Yeah, so our Milwaukee War Tax Resistance Group collaborated with casa maria the catholic worker but also with the local peace action group and their weekly stand for peace so the saturday before tax day i believe that was april 13th we had a vigil where we held signs and passed out flyers outside the army reserve base that's on the northwest side of milwaukee our theme this year was fly kites don't fly drones so we did bring some kites we didn't fly them it was one, extremely windy, and two, we didn't want them accidentally going over into the bases territory or getting into power lines, but we had had kites that we could hold and people could see, and trying to raise awareness of the fact that even though the Obama administration itself greatly increased the use of drones for warfare and for targeting so-called terrorists that they wanted to kill, The Obama administration really increased that over the previous George W. Bush administration. Because Trump is often in the news for so many other things, it's not regularly known that in the first two years of his administration, he has actually conducted more drone strikes that have resulted in more drone deaths than Obama's entire eight years in office. Again, that was more of the purpose of our demonstration this year is to raise awareness of that. And that's one of the things, one of the many things
0: that our taxes are going to. Did you create your own kites or did you paint on them or write just write words? So what kind of kites? Is there a picture of them somewhere?
1: There are pictures online on our tax day action site. Actually, we just asked folks to bring kites that they had at home. So they're just regular kites that people would often hold in one hand, and then many of us had signs that emphasized the message.
0: So that's what War Tax Resistance Group, kind of loosely organized group that currently exists in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was doing. What about around the nation, and who should I be talking to about various actions that went on? What, which ones caught your eye?
1: I think a good person to talk to, one would be Sue Barnhart, who's in Eugene, Oregon. Her local war tax resistance group was collaborating this year with Extinction Rebellion and a number of other climate change groups to raise awareness of another aspect of the military budget, which is the U.S. military is the number one user of oil in the world trying to bring that into the climate change debate or the sustainability debate, that while it's wonderful and neat for each of us to live more simply, drive less, if we're in a cold climate like Wisconsin, maybe try to turn our heat down a degree or two in the winter, but at the end of the day, it really pales in comparison to the amount of oil and the amount of carbon that the U.S. military is putting into the air, and if we don't address that issue then we're really missing a huge piece of the pie and we're not going to have we cannot have an adequate discussion about climate
0: change. So that was off in Eugene, Oregon and I'll get a hold of Sue Barnhart to talk about that. How many submissions overall did you get in? How many groups reported in with news and some that maybe you included in the thing you sent out and some that you didn't?
1: Normally there could be anywhere between 15 to 24 Action, couple dozen actions going around nationwide. So sometimes we don't always hear about them or sometimes we don't always know about them in advance because they might be put together at the last minute, especially if it's a smaller group in a smaller area. But, yeah, there's always a lot of good actions going around. I know a, another one, Ann Barron, who's part of the Peace Resource Center in San Diego, Their group was very involved and has been very involved this past year or two with the Poor People's Campaign. And so on that same Saturday that we were having our action here in Milwaukee, they were finishing up, I want to say, a week-long bus tour. And the last day of that bus tour was finishing up at the southern border to raise awareness of the tax dollars being used for the militarization of the southern border and often horrible uses that the military budget is used for.
0: And so she's down in California, uh, San Diego area, and Barron. I'll talk to her. And and talking about some different issues, of course, she's right down by the border, and uh, you know when you're that close, then immigration is a big deal. It's staring you in the face, of course, and as well as the military right next to us. You mentioned in Milwaukee there the I guess it's the. National Reserve, or it's the Military Reserve? I'm not sure which location you're speaking of. Since I lived in Milwaukee, I probably should know this, but what actually happens in Milwaukee?
1: In Milwaukee, the Army Reserve base, it's on the northwest side around 55th and Silver Spring. Truthfully, I'm not too sure what exactly happens there, but it is the largest base in our area, and it gets a lot of traffic being on Silver Spring Drive, which is a major thoroughway. So so it's a place that we often visit on tax day. This year was no different. At the end of our vigiling this year, Don Timmerman and his wife Roberta Thurston, they walked up to the guards at the gate and gave them our information and talked to them about their concerns about the military budget and what it's used for and in some years, just going up there, they've called the police and threatened to arrest them, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think because we've been going now for a few years, they let Don and Roberta have their say for about five to ten minutes, and, and then they, they come back and join us before we leave for the day.
0: Speaking of Don Timmerman and facing arrest, in the first action that I was part of on Tax Day when I was in Milwaukee, 1982 it would have been, he attempted to get arrested. they didn't bother to arrest him. They just kind of hustled him out of the place. Facing arrest, a lot of people think, you know, if I practice war tax resistance, I'm going to end up in prison. And the people who actually end up in prison for doing that have been people who have been accused of fraud. But there's any number of actions, whether it's flying kites or speaking to people at the Army Reserve, where they'll threaten to arrest you. Have you dealt with that? Have you seen Don arrested? Uh, he, he seems to be comfortable with the idea. Yeah,
1: So I know I moved into Casa Maria in the fall of 1998, and then in that spring, uh, April, it, let's just say it was April 15th, I don't know what day tax day was for sure in 1999, but that year we held signs in front of the federal building, which there's two federal buildings in downtown Milwaukee. We were in front of the big blue one on 3rd in Wisconsin, which also houses the offices of Tammy Baldwin, but also the IRS. So after being outside for an hour, Don, Roberta, myself, and a friend of mine, at the time I was in the seminary program, I was contemplating a call to the priesthood. So myself and another Milwaukee seminarian we all went in together with our signs and vigiled directly in the building in front of the IRS offices, handing out leaflets. And I'd say the police showed up within five minutes, and within another five minutes, we were being put into a paddy wagon handcuffed. <laughs> so <laughs> so over the years, we have been arrested together a few times on tax day and charged normally with disorderly conduct. And it's through this process Well, I guess two things. One, that was my very first time being arrested, my very first time seeing what a holding cell looks like in Milwaukee, and you know, having some of that experience, which to me is even more meaningful now that I'm more aware of issues of police brutality that are faced by many minority communities, and not that I was treated as badly as some of them often are, but I had a small taste of seeing what it looks like on the inside and seeing what the treatment is on the inside and how others are treated. The other part that I learned though is when it comes to trials, so much depends on the judge because some years a judge would look at what we did and say, you're guilty. And on other years, they'd say, well, this didn't happen exactly, so I don't think it's disorderly conduct, so I'm dismissing the case. (laughs) So every year, we really had no idea if we'd be found guilty of these charges for walking in the building to the IRS office. Maybe about seven years ago, they moved the office to another building where now it's much more hidden away, away from traffic. I like to think that they did that because they were sick of our tax day protests, (laughs)
0: well you know they used to be before you were there back when I was first standing as part of that witness uh, it was further east it was on Washington Avenue which is the major street and the other one is on Washington is also but on a corner the difference between those two buildings was the place where I first did my war tax resistance witness it was go through a door and go straight into another door which was the IRS office When they moved to the one where you were first arrested, it's kind of hidden back in there. It became less obvious to go inside the building. If I'm not mistaken, that government building is actually a private building. So there's other offices in there, and you can get lost going to the IRS office. The point being that they kept trying to make it harder for us to speak to them, to connect our witness with them. And so I think the move that you spoke of is just a continuation that they want to hide. They don't want to have their names connected with the bloodshed that we're all part of supporting each time we write a check out to the government.
1: Agreed. You'd mentioned how a couple people have gone to jail for war tax resistance, but it's usually included fraud. And I guess just to continue on that piece, yeah, I think maybe over the last almost 40 years, maybe there's been an additional handful of three or four people who've gone to jail where it hasn't been for fraud. But even in those instances, they didn't actually go to jail because of their war tax resistance. They went to jail because they were one of the very rare cases where they brought one of us to court and under oath, were asked where they keep their assets, because at the end of the day, the IRS simply wants the money. And so in the courtroom, when the person would not divulge where they kept their assets, the judge held them in contempt. And so in those instances, they may have spent a month or two in jail in contempt until the judge decided to finally let them go. As a general rule, Nutrick advises war tax resistors not to practice fraud In that sense, we try to practice a more Gandhian nonviolent approach, that it's better to be open about what we're doing. And so most war tax resistors, and I put myself in this boat, well, some choose to file and some choose not to file. I choose to file, but I put down everything that I earned. I'm very honest about what I made. I don't want to be practicing fraud, and most of us don't want to practice fraud. And then I'll include a letter explaining why I'm not paying the amount. So at the bottom, they'll say, I owe such and such an amount, but there'll be no check included. That would be a more common practice for war tax resistors following a more Gandhian model of confrontation with the IRS or with our
0: opponent And that's the way that I've practiced it as well. Again, folks, we're speaking with Lincoln Rice, who is the National Coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. He's located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But the group, NWTRCC, pronounced Nutric, is nationwide, and we've got people all over. So you mentioned about some of those people who've been facing jail for various reasons, uh, connected with, not necessarily because specifically war tax resistance. One of them was Carl Meyer from Chicago. He actually went to jail for a period, and he, but he's been effectively war tax resisting as long as I can remember. It must be 40-plus years he's been doing it. Anyone else who's notable for going to court?
1: One person would be Larry Bassett. He was actually brought to court, uh, I believe, in 85. He actually got a good judge, and when he pleaded the fifth, in response to being asked where he kept his assets, where in the past many judges have held someone in contempt, this judge actually ruled that Larry was entitled to take the fifth. And so, so he was able to keep his assets hidden, and he, essentially that court case didn't come to him suffering any jail time. Though he would also be a a good person to talk to. There's actually a film that was just released about a month ago. It's available on Amazon and the, the year before it was playing at certain film festivals and won some awards. But it covers a more recent action of Larry Bassett where he had inherited a million dollars from his father who had passed away and his father wanted Well, in the film he states he thinks this is what his father meant. He's pretty sure that his father essentially gave him the entire inheritance then to pass out to the rest of the family because then he could do it to the rest of the family in smaller chunks. But because of Larry needing to liquidate those assets and that having tax implications, he ended up resisting initially in the realm of $125,000 Of resisted taxes that he then redirected what would have been owed in taxes to other organizations and groups in need. And so it covers that journey, that decision-making, and his unease, because truthfully, the IRS could pursue him for this. But as of yet, I believe this initially happened in 2016, that he started liquidating his father's inheritance. And thus far, other than certified mail, he has faced no repercussions from the IRS.
0: So I will talk to Larry Bassett about his court cases, his witness, his what you do when you become a millionaire. <laughs> I think that and Bernie Sanders had to deal with that because of a very successful book, right? He became a millionaire, and uh, Fox News went after him to figuring that he's either being hypocritical or needs to change his stripes so he can protect his money from the government. <laughs> but I, I'm somehow doubting that that'll convert someone like Larry Bassett into a pro-military taxes. I just don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Definitely not.
1: I'll, I'll just mention one more action specifically, Susan Quinlan, I don't think she is available at the moment to talk to, but she's part of a group in San Francisco, the Northern California People's Life Fund. And every year they get together and they have a celebration. The good thing about their action, it also emphasizes another aspect of war tax resistance. It's not just trying to prevent money from going to the military. It's not that we are saying we earn this money, it's just ours, we want to keep it all. Those of us who make enough money to refuse payment then redirect it to things we view are more life-giving and needs that are being neglected by the federal budget. And so each year that group, which is very strong, takes those redirected taxes and has a ceremony where they give out funds to local groups that could really use those funds to help people in the area. So this year they redirected over $15,000 worth of funds, which I know they felt bad that it was an off year for them because last year they had redirected $36,000. So they're a very active group and they know that even though, let's say last year, that $36,000, that's small potatoes for the military, but for the groups that receive that money, it's really helpful and it really goes a long way.
0: Yeah, redirection of these funds is amazingly impactful on our communities when it's done. And if you just think of it, the average household, I think, probably spends something like $8,000 a year on federal income taxes. Of course, that's not my household where my income might keep low as well. But the average American, if you have $8,000 and more than half of that is going to the military, if you take $4,000 from a 1,000 households, that's $4 million. What group couldn't be transformed by an infusion of funding like that? Even a small percentage of the population practicing war tax redirection can make an amazing change to the way that peace and prosperity and justice flourish in our communities. Exactly. Unfortunately, we won't be able to reach out, I guess, to Susan Quinlan, but I will reach out to Sue Barnhart in Eugene, Oregon, and Barron in San Diego, California, and Larry Bassett. I believe he's over in Virginia. And I just appreciate so much you stepping into the role. You had big shoes to fill in ascending to this coordinator position. It wouldn't be appropriate if we didn't at least mention Ruth Benn and her long service serving in the position you now hold. Is she still your constant? angel on your shoulder giving you pointers and helping direct you
1: i just emailed ruth something this morning (laughs) but yeah i'd say on a weekly or (laughs) every other week i'm emailing ruth to ask her advice on something or i run into an issue and she's just been so helpful many people after being in a position for over 15 years might say oh i need a break and and she has you know i don't try to uh abuse her willingness to be helpful but she's just such a wealth of information and also very, still very involved with the War Resisters League in New York and very involved in the peace movement still.
0: Our gratitude certainly goes out to Ruth Ben for her long time service. There's so many people conscientiously trying to live their lives for the betterment of their communities in our country. A lot of them are war tax resistors, war tax redirectors. We're lucky to have you, Lincoln Rice, serving as coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. N-W-T-R-C-C, pronounced Nutric, as the coordinator. You're performing a valuable service to this wide umbrella of people, conscientious, but also the people doing really good work there through Casa Maria, the Catholic workers' community there in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Lincoln Rice, you're a gem. Thank you for doing the work so widely and so much in your community, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you for bringing this issue to the forefront of
0: your show. What a pleasure to be able to highlight the work and witness of people like Lincoln Rice. I've got links to Milwaukee's Casa Maria and to the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee website nwtrcc.org on northernspiritradio.org. But there is so much more on our site as well. We've got all of our Spirit in Action and Song of Soul programs on the website, links to all of our guests, and lots more info, like the some 41 stations nationwide that carry these programs. And don't forget to post a comment when you visit northernspiritradio.org. How else are we going to get to know one another? There's also a donate button, and we're counting on you because we've made the decision not to get our support for this full-time work from corporations or the government. That leaves you, the listener, the people who value these programs. But support your local community radio stations first. They are the ultimate community connection to alternative news and music, so dig deep in your pocket and keep them going. I'm thinking especially of my home station, WHYS here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where there's a rent party going on right now. You can help out at WHYSradio.org. On the front page, you can click and support, and there are certainly similar options wherever you're listening to this from. But let's head back to the topic at hand, war tax resistance, and we're calling up the first name that Lincoln Rice gave me, that of a war tax resistor and activist over in Eugene, Oregon, Sue Barnard. Sue, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action.
2: Oh, thanks for asking me.
0: Actually, it would have been really nice to talk to you before tax day, before April 15th, 2019. But I didn't get my act together. I had to worry about my own dealings with the federal government. (laughs) Is tax day still a big thing for you? You've been a war tax resistor for a long time.
2: Yeah, I've been a war tax resistor since the late 70s, early 80s, when I first met other war tax resistors and realized it was something I could do. And Eugene has had a, some sort of tax day action since before I moved here in 85, practically every year. And, you know, back when the, most people went to the post office on tax day, we always had a big thing at the post office. And we'd be there till midnight doing the penny poll and distributing leaflets. But in more recent years... You know, most people don't usually go to the post office that much more untaxed than any other day. So we sometimes do an action there, or sometimes we do a march or something else. Yeah, it kind of depends on the year.
0: I saw the transition while I was in Milwaukee, part of the War Tax Resistance Group there, when the IRS moved to a less visible or inaccessible place, so you couldn't protest them as directly. Did something like that happen in Eugene?
2: Yeah, the tax building, you know, they got more and more off on little roads and not where there was much of a presence of people. So we did some years do a protest in front of the IRS building, but it was only people who wanted to go would go. We couldn't get anybody off the street interested because it was on such a back street.
0: Yeah, what they did in Milwaukee, they moved from a government building to a commercially owned building, and they just had some rooms in it. So you couldn't go in the building at all and get up to their floor to protest anywhere near them. So you couldn't tell people going in the building if they're going to IRS or any of the other businesses that were in there. So I thought it was actually a a pretty devious attempt to make sure that their part in the machinery of war in this country was being downplayed. Did you actually experience a decrease in energy for protesting them because they're hidden more?
2: I don't know about that. And then it turned out this year, when we were figuring out what we were going to do, someone did some Googling and found out that they moved into a federal building again. In Eugene, we have a new federal courthouse, and a lot of the offices have moved over to the new place. So I guess probably... I don't know if the government made them move into the old federal building or they decided to, you know, did they really like, yeah, we had them in a commercial building too. So did they do that? Who knows? Who who knows the inner workings? But anyway, we were like, wow, this is a great place for a protest. So we did move from the post office, which again, there's the significance of trying to get people to stamp their tax envelope with you know paid under protest or all that kind of stuff is you know no one goes to the post office anymore to mail their taxes so it didn't seem like we should do it at the post office anymore so yeah we moved it to the old federal building which is a great location as far as a lot of exposure a lot of cars and people walk by on the street we actually marched from the old federal building to the new federal building because we brought a letter to the irs and then we brought copies of that letter and met with our Congress people
0: at the new federal building. In the publicity that Lincoln Rice sent out from the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, which folks will know by its initials NWTRCC, NUTRIC. He mentioned some of the things that happened around Eugene, Oregon, and it said that you gathered in the courtyard by the old federal building. You did some singing and music. What songs? Give me an example of a song that you sang.
2: Oh, you know, we actually had a great folk singer who just moved here from Austin, Texas, and he sang a lot of songs. So we weren't actually singing. I think at one point we were going to be singing along, but it was more of a little concert. And he did do some of the traditional songs, Ain't Gonna Study War No More. And then he did a rendition of The Beatles' Tax Man <laughs> and okay. some of his other old songs, which I can't think of right now. But but it was nice because he was a younger guy, you know, probably in his 30s. So I was excited that he was singing all these old songs I knew.
0: I understand this was taking place in the rain. Is that?
2: Yeah, it was pouring rain, which it often is on tax day here in Eugene. Every once in a while, we get a sunny tax day, but normally it's pouring rain. <laughs> mm.
0: So then you delivered your tax protest letter to the IRS office in Eugene, and you had some speakers, uh, Women's Action, New Directions, WAND. I don't, I've not heard of that group.
2: Oh, well, you know, it was founded by Helen Caldecott, and they were Women's Alliance for Nuclear Disarmament for years. And then they updated, and they've been called Women's Action for New Directions for quite a long time. Susan Cundiff, the local president of that organization, made this fantastic banner out of cloth that shows, it's kind of like a bar graph. It shows how much of our national budget of our tax dollars goes to the military, which is an incredible amount, way over 50%. When you also put in the interest from from all of the wars, and you think about, the veterans benefits and all of the amount of money that supports war. It's way over fifty percent of our taxes. And so she has it broken down to show, you know, how much was for the military and the teeny tiny bit that's for like education, human services, the environment. It's it's a great bar graph that really explains to people how little of our taxes actually go for life affirming things versus how much of our taxes go towards unfortunately killing people.
0: Now you've been part of the war tax resistance group there in Eugene for quite a while. Are you one of the originators? Is, is Sue Barnard on the originating document for the uh, you call <laughs> you you call your group taxes for peace, not war, right?
2: Okay, yeah, I actually was around when we named the group taxes for peace, not war. But there were war tax resistors here in Eugene before I moved here. I didn't move here until '85. I was actually involved. I lived in New, New England, and I was involved with the War Resisters League in New England, and that's where I first learned about being a war tax resistor. So when I moved out here, there was a pretty big group of war tax resistors. Unfortunately, you know, some of them have passed away now, and some of them have gotten discouraged about, you know, about about wars and how you know, them not paying their taxes hasn't, they haven't felt it's really made a difference. But this year we had a lot of energy from environmentalists who are very upset about how that the military, the U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the whole world. And they were very interested in trying to get them to to lower our carbon footprint by lowering how much money is going to the military.
0: Well, that's interesting, and and these are just people you've known of your own age group, or are they younger folks, or is it, it...
2: You know, it's it's a wide range, lots of different people. Not all in my age group, you know, not all of them are old hippies, peace activist types. A lot of these people are in their 30s and 20s, some in their 40s, 50s, with a wide range of people, you know, who are very concerned about what's happening to our world and you know, young people who are really worried about their future. So it was great to have this new group of people who also want less money going to the military.
0: And how is it that you phrased and that they're seeing it? uh, As you said, the U.S. military is the biggest single corporate polluter of the world, I understand. And clearly people have been aware that, you know, we've been 50 percent or so of our federal income tax dollars going to the military for years and that if people only can grasp the significance of that number how how many thousands of dollars each person is paying towards the military how do the environmentalists then hook in more directly is there something that's particularly spurring their interest right now
2: well i think that for the environmentalists you know, there's been some recent reports, scientific reports, that we really, at the most, have 12 years before it's going to really be too late to do much to mitigate the damage of all, of all of us having such a big carbon footprint and the military having a huge carbon footprint. So I think the environmentalists are becoming desperate to do something to try to change the course of what's happening in the world. So they really got behind this whole idea of, well, let's get the military to first off cut their budget so there's more money to try to combat climate change, but also so that we can stop their heavy pollution.
0: I understand that some of this is linked with extinction rebellion and Yeah. And I've heard just a little bit about them. I saw that people were what gluing themselves to the wall or something in London and uh but there are all kinds of activities going on. That's part of what's energizing locally there in Eugene, Oregon?
2: Yes, I think so. And the, uh yeah, a big group of people who used to be involved at 350.org and they still are they now just jumped on the extinction rebellion bandwagon and extinction rebellion nationally was doing a series of protests between April 15th tax day and Earth day the 22nd and so that whole week there was lots of good things going on all over the world and so we did a you know our protest on April 15th and there were people all, all over the country doing them. Of course, you know, war tax resistors and also the environmentalists. And it was great that here in Eugene, we were all working together.
0: I'm sure that a lot of our listeners for Spirit in Action are just wondering what has energized you, Sue Barnard, to do this for, I guess it's close to 40 years now that you've been practicing as a war tax resistor. I started in 1982. It was the first time I actually resisted taxes. And And I felt the energy from it. Of course, it takes effort, too. How has that balance gone for you over the years? Uh, You're retired, I think, now, so maybe it's a new phase for you as well.
2: Yeah. You know, I have a bit of a pension, and so I did have to pay, or I would have had to pay a little bit of taxes this year, but I also have a lower income, and I have a child still in college, so I was able to legally not pay as much, Taxes as many people just because I'm, you know, supporting her and you know I could get some tax credits for education credits for paying for her college education. That was great. That legally I was able to pay much less taxes than when I was making a little more money or when I didn't have a kid in college. But I think that as a peace activist, you know, when I was younger I didn't know you had to You know, it was kind of like, you know, death and taxes. Everybody has to die. Everybody has to pay taxes. And then I met other peace activists who didn't pay taxes, I was like, wow, I can legally, I mean, not legally, but I can do this. I cannot pay taxes. I can take a real stand. So I've done it all these years. But yes, of course, um, at times I'm like, well, this isn't really doing any good. It's, you know, such an effort. I'm going to quit. But it does energize me when there's more people that I know of that are doing it, when you know, years that we've had a good support group, we would meet once a month and have a breakfast together and chat and support each other. And if someone was having an issue with the IRS, we could offer support and suggestions. And that helped to keep me going. And right now it's helping to keep me going that all of a sudden there's a lot more interested, people interested in this again.
0: Well, it is it is energizing to feel the number of people who are really concerned I'm afraid that over the years there have been lapses in attention. With the end of the Cold War, I think a lot of people said, well, you know, finally the percentage that's going to the military from the federal income tax dollar, well, now it's down to only 42% instead of 50%, you know. When it got down a little bit lower, I think people started resting on their laurels. At what point did you feel particularly energized or re-energized? Or has your, your energy just been steady all through for 40 years?
2: Yeah, no, I think I've gone back and forth. But it's definitely helpful when there's other people that I can talk to. You know, it seemed like the, our country did have a few years there where we weren't really at war. Maybe we were, but I didn't know as much about it. But certainly since 9-11, it seems like, you know, I guess they call it the endless war. So it's hard not to be discouraged that our country is causing so much havoc all over the world. But it certainly kept me not wanting to just go along by contributing money to
0: killing people. I understand that uh, just before Tax Day 2019, you weren't actually in Eugene, Oregon. You were down in Tijuana in Mexico. You just retired from a job as a county social worker. What were you doing down in Tijuana?
2: I was trying to support asylum seekers. You know, right now, people who are seeking asylum, and a lot of them are from Central America, where the military has been creating havoc for generations down there, sending people to the School of Americas, which is teaching people from other countries how to torture their citizens. But so, yeah, anyway, I was down there working at a soup kitchen and also working for an agency called lado where they provide a lot of legal support for asylum seekers um, and the asylum seekers are just sort of massing at the border now because they can't get into the US the US is doing something which is really illegal according to our constitution according to international law if a person goes up to the border and says i need asylum please let me in they're supposed to let them in and then they can interview them to determine whether or not they truly are an asylum seeker, but they're supposed to just let them in. And so what our country's doing, it's said to Mexico, we don't want these people coming to the border. Don't let them come to the border. So the Mexican government is working with the U.S. government to keep people from going to the border. They're in shelters and on the streets of Tijuana and other border towns, which is very hard for these border towns to have to absorb all these people. And then the U.S. government will say to the Border Patrol in Mexico, you can let 40 people come today up to our border and we'll process 40 people or you can, we'll process 20 people. This has never happened before. Now there's like a list, a big long list with thousands of asylum seekers' names on it. And then each day 10 to 40 and maybe at the most 50 people are called and those people can go up to the border and actually ask for asylum.
0: And you were observing this firsthand?
2: Yeah, I was observing this firsthand. And then we would also, when the people would line up, you know, the one, their name was called and they were able to line up to then go to the border, we would talk to them and explain to them this horrible thing that happens. Is Some of them already knew this, but sometimes people had missed our talks and didn't know about this, that what the U.S. government does is, as soon as the people go up and ask for assistance, ask for asylum, They're thrown in a detention center for 3 to 10 days where the temperature is kept at about 45 or 50 degrees so it's freezing cold and they're shoved into these cells with lots of other people. There's not even room for them all to lie down and sleep at the same time they 're not fed very much food, and the lights are on non stop the whole time and they 're doing this because then a lot of the people feel so terrible after this and These are people that legally are asking for asylum they 're not even sneaking across the border or anything, and they 've suffered tremendous trauma in their past, which is why they need asylum and then they get thrown into into this detention center and so anyway, we were explaining this is going to happen to them to put their warmest layer of clothing as their bottom layer because what they do is they strip them of all clothes except for their bottom layer of clothing and then they throw them into these, into the, these freezing cold detention centers. So we were explaining that to people. We were also telling them, giving them indelible markers so that they could write the names of any friends or family or people that they were going to be contacting once they got in the U.S. and phone numbers because all their possessions are taken from them and when they get their possessions back and sometimes they don't, their cell phones will be dead so they won't be able to call anyone. And then, of course, we were explaining that their children might be separated from them, so we are telling them to write their name and some contact people on their children's arms too, so in case their children were separated from them, hopefully they could get reunited at some point.
0: What a nightmare. And I understand that from the people's point of view who want to discourage immigration of any sort, really, that doing all of this is going to make someone think twice, three times, and 12 times before coming to the U.S. Certainly not much of a beacon of liberty and justice for the world.
2: That's true. Definitely. Yeah. And, and we, I do know that some people, once they got out of the cells, they just said, I want to go back to my country. And so, you know, so it's working to some extent, this policy, but it's a horrendous policy. And, you know, I don't want my tax money going to this either. And it's costing lots and lots of money, these detention centers. And then after the person gets out of the icebox, it's not like they're just released. Some are. Some are released. But the majority of them are then sent to other jails and detention centers all over the U.S. And these are private corporations that are making a lot of money. And it's our tax money that's supporting these torture chambers.
0: There's so many horrors that our dollars are supporting. And I'm really thankful for people like you, Sue Barnard, but also all of the other people who are part of Eugene Group. Again, your war tax resistance group called Taxes for Peace, Not War hopefully that's something we could unite around in the meantime 40 years or so of practicing war tax resistance so i'm both pleased to know you impressed with your work and thankful that you joined me today for spirit in action
2: oh thanks so much it's been a pleasure talking to you
0: keep up the good work and let's stay in touch
2: okay that sounds great
0: thanks I'm grateful to Sue Barnard and Lincoln Rice for joining us today. There are links for them on northernspiritradio.org. Follow the links to educate yourself and find a community of support for your work. Next week, we'll follow up with two more guests involved in War Tax Day 2019. One over in California, another in Virginia. Get ready to be inspired. Big thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's show, and we'll see you next week